Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you bright and early on this Saturday morning. Uh, this is a little bit unusual time for us to meet in a gospel meeting, but I've got a little hint for you. We do the same thing in Coleman, Alabama, uh, especially on our uh, Friday through Sunday uh, meetings. We have uh, two of those every year, and what we'll do is on Saturday, we'll have, uh, of course, uh, one session on Friday night, have two sessions actually on do that, but I really appreciate this. I actually like preaching early in the morning because my mind is fresher. Uh, I told uh, uh, Brother Clay just a little bit ago that growing old is not for sissies. And so uh, by the time it comes evening, if I hadn't had a a nap at night uh, or in the afternoon, by the time it comes evening, my brain just kind of slows down and stops. But what is neat is you get up early in the morning and you feel like a young man because uh, your mind is still fresh and things go. Of course, I'll have to let you be the judge of that as we go through the lesson. Uh, But the mind usually is a whole lot quicker uh, of a morning, and I'm certainly thankful for the opportunity to be here and to uh, work with you and preach these lessons. And I hope that the things that I have to say will uh, be beneficial for you as you go throughout your studies with other people uh, and as you think about these things for your everyday life. You know, almost from the dawn of creation, uh, people have struggled with sexual immorality. You may see it as early as Genesis chapter 6, where in verse 2 the Bible tells us that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, uh, whomever they chose. But you certainly see it by the time you come to Genesis chapter uh, 16, or chapter 19 rather, and you see where uh, Lot is having an incestuous relationship uh, with his daughters after they have fled the city of Sodom. You see a vivid contrast in, uh, later in the book of Genesis between uh, uh, Joseph who refused the advances of Potiphar's uh, wife and also Judah who the chapter earlier seemingly searched out for a harlot and bore three illegitimate children by uh, by her. And so again, what we're saying is that sexual immorality certainly is not a new thing, nor is it confined to ancient generations. All of us know, all of us realize that we have that problem in our world today. It's a modern problem, to say the very least. Now, in an effort to lessen the stigma of sexual immorality, what has happened is, is that our society has euphemized it. What they've done to the, to the homosexual, it's just a, a normal but just a different or alternate lifestyle. To the prostitute, it's just a working girl plying her trade or uh, some may say, particularly with uh, young women, as they go through college, they're just paying their way through college. To the traveling salesman, it's just a meaningless one-night stand or just another form of recreation without a permanent commitment. And to a teenager, it's just kind of when they're left alone in the house... Uh, it's kind of taking their relationship uh, another step forward, a serious step, but still considered a thing uh, by most people in, in the world. Yet no matter how you describe it or even in your attempts to euphemize it, no matter which euphemism you may choose, at the end of the day the Bible still calls it sexual immorality or fornication. And it is a problem. Now I used to give statistics to show how many people engaged in fornication. I did it to really for the shock value. I did it to try to get people to set up and take notice of what was really taking place. 
But I honestly think that things have gone so far in our, uh, in, in our society that to actually quote statistics is, is a bit useless. Just a few generations ago, fornication was considered a sin by most uh, Americans. And if it was made public, it was often held up to public scorn. But I'm, I've been made to wonder, and this may not really resonate with uh, anybody under 40 years old, but uh, I'm made to wonder, would Bill Clinton be treated the same, day, the same way today that he was in 1995 when he has an affair with Monica Lewinsky? Uh, I, I don't believe he would, actually. Uh, because people shamed him. Most of America shamed him, not just because it gave them a political advantage, but because they believed that having an extramarital affair what was sin and it was wrong and he shouldn't do it. I think today most people would just dismiss it and say that's just a private matter with him and his family, uh, between him and his wife and, and maybe uh, him and his paramour. Uh, I, I think we just consider it a private matter and just disregard it. My fear is, is that we've become so used to it We've become so desensitized to it by the entertainment media uh, specifically uh, that we just don't really think about it at all. In fact, what I want to show you is that the word fornication has almost itself become an outdated term. Now, you know that the King James uh, translation was made in 1611 and the American Standard Translation, which has been touted as the best Greek to English translation that has ever been translated, uses the word fornication 44 times. That was in 1901. It used the word fornication 44 times. When we come 80 years later to the New King James, and while there were a few translations made between then, between then there, there really wasn't very many major ones, wasn't really any major ones until the New King James come along 80 years later. And it used the word less than half that many times. It uses the word uh, fornication only 21 times. But then you move on to uh, 1978 and even in 1995 with the New American Standard updated, which is what I have. I don't use the 2020 version because it's not near as good as the 1995 version. But the 1995 version uses the word only eight times. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening? And then the ESV in 2001 and the CSB 2017, both of which are very common translations that we use today in our churches, among churches of Christ, doesn't use the word fornication at all. They don't use that English word at all. Now, let me tell you why this matters. Because it matters for a very important reason. Let's just take one passage, Matthew 19 and verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now I want to show you where the problem with translating the word Greek word pornea as immorality instead of fornication really becomes a problem here. The, the problem lies in the fact that not all immorality is sexual immorality. Uh, lying, cheating, stealing, all of these things we consider to be immoral, right? But they are not fornication. But furthermore, even if you were to put sexual in front of it, call it sexual immorality, which is what I, I think maybe either the ESV, CSB, or both, you translate that word in this context, 
even translated sexual immorality doesn't get the job done because not all sexual immorality is pornea or fornication. For example, impurity, sensuality, and lust, like we have talked about in previous lessons in this study. They are all immoral and they are all sexually immoral, but they are distinguished from fornication in passages like Galatians 5.19. Because there were fornications, then there were impurities, and, and then there were sensualities. And the, these, this word uh, uh, sexually immor- immorality or immorality does not specifically point to, it, it, they're too general. They do not point to the specific sin of fornication. Let me give you an illustration that I, that I think all of us will be able to see. The Greek term for baptism, uh, that is, uh, spe- is specific to immersion. It's baptizo. And it is specific to immersion. When, when that word was used uh, in, in, in the Greek and translated into the English, really transliterated into the English, that word meant to immerse. And that it, it specifically means immerse. But English translations, uh, English dictionaries, if you go to the English dictionary today, it's going to define that word as sprinkling, pouring, or immersion, which is far more general than the word actually was used. And so that's the problem. When we use a general term like immorality instead of the more specific term like fornication, people are likely to include more things in that immorality or sexual immorality than is actually limited in the word fornication. Now, honestly, I I feel a little uncomfortable talking about this subject in uh, a public assembly, but I'm convinced that it's vital. I'm I'm convinced that it is absolutely imperative that we talk about it, and that for at least three reasons. One, uh, fornication or sexual immorality is still a sin. It hasn't changed no matter how how you euphemize it. No matter how you look at it, it's still a sin. It's still a transgression of God's law. And if unrepented of, it'll lead someone to lose his soul eternally in a devil's hell. I don't know how to put it any plainer. But secondly, there's a lot of confusion on this subject today because of the, the way that those words, immorality and sexual immorality, can be uh, looked at more generally than the specific word fornication. And I believe that what we're doing today is going to clear up any confusion that there might be because I think that just a simple study of the Scriptures can clear up that confusion. But thirdly, I want to suggest to you that there are false teachers making merchandise of brethren and spiritual counselors who who today are actually leading people into adulterous marriages, even as unintended as that may be, by their false theories and misuse of these terms. And so we need to know specifically what we are talking about. Let me begin, if I may, by defining exactly what what I am talking about. Our English word fornication, as I mentioned earlier, translates that Greek word pornea. And it's used 25 times in the uh, New American Standard uh, Bible or in the text of which the New American Bible comes from. It's translated in the New American Standard as immorality or immorality 17 times. And in the New American Standard, it's translated fornication or fornication six times, unchastity once, and sexual immorality once. Now, the, the many Greek lexicons are consistent in their definitions and usages of this word. Uh, BDAG, which is Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, which is one of the older and better uh, Greek lexicons, 
Define this word as prostitution, unchastity, fornication, of every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. And the word intercourse uh, becomes important here. Baker Encyclopedia says that it means unchastity, sexual immorality. Its general meaning refers to every kind of sexual intercourse that is any intercourse except that between a husband and a wife. And if you were to use some of the, uh, some of the other, maybe even more popular lexicons like uh, Thayer or, or Vine, they would tell you exactly the same thing. So what specifically I'm talking about Fornication includes and refers to all kinds of sexual intercourse or union outside of scriptural marriages. And you can look at, uh, you may look at prostitution or premarital sex or extramarital sex, incest, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality. All of these things fall within the category of, uh, of fornication. But confusion has been created by some who have falsely taught that lust is equivalent to pornea. Let me back up on my thing here. Um, I, I actually forgot a slide in this particular version of my PowerPoint, and I apologize for that. Uh, an, in an unpublished paper that I have in my possession, a man defined, uh, uh, he was defining uh, this concept. And he said that lust, such things as in the use of pornography or eyes resting uh, too long upon a woman, is equivalent to pornea or fornication. Now think about what that's going to do. Think about the impact of that. In fact, the next thing he said actually plainly states the impact that he believes it'll have. He said self-gratification and pornography are sexual immoral. Therefore, they are pornea, that is, they are included in fornication. We certainly need to consider the implications. If pornea refers to every sexual sin, then Jesus allows divorce for any sexual sin, including all those listed above. And so, if a man views pornography, he's guilty of immorality, therefore, since immorality and fornication are the same thing, he can divorce his wife for looking at pornography. In fact, the truth of the matter is, what this man believed is if he was going down the street and he saw a woman and he lusted after her, then he would have been guilty of fornication and therefore his wife would have the right to scripturally uh, divorce him. Now, my reply is twofold. Lust is no more literally fornication than anger is murder. Me and you both know that there is a difference between anger and maybe the murder that it may, uh, anger may lead to. There's a difference between the attitude of the heart and what actually comes out of the heart in action. And the same thing is true with lust. Lust is something that takes place in the heart. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. And I don't think that anybody in this audience, especially those who have been here, would. Because you know that I believe that the use uh, that, that lusting is sin. I believe that the use of pornography to be sin. It is lasciviousness. It is licentiousness. It is wrong. And again, if any of that is committed and unrepented of, it can cause a person to lose his soul. You know that. You know I believe that. But at the same time, lust is not fornication. Lust takes place in the heart. 
Fornication is something that is going to come later. And so we need to remember that. Now there's always a nexus between what goes on in the heart and its actual manifestation, but there is a difference. James says, lust, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. That's his point, and I think it is important. It, it's, a, it's a sin of a greater consequence, and it's a sin that has a greater consequence to it. And as stated earlier, Paul makes a distinction among the deeds of the flesh in, in Galatians chapter 5. But the use of pornography and its attendant lust, as bad as that may be, is no more meets the definition of fornication than sprinkling meets the definition of Bible baptism. Make sure that we make those things parallel. Now, I, what I want to do is uh, make four points about this sin, and after that, of course, uh, the lesson will be yours. I, I want to point out that, that fornication truly is a, uh, a sin. It, it is a sin. Even though many people euphemize it, as we pointed out earlier in the beginning, uh, fornication is repeatedly identified in no uncertain terms as a sin in the Word of God. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, and then he goes on, and that's the word fornication, and later he goes on to say that people who commit these things and such like, things like this, uh, they indeed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13 and verse 4. So it is a sin. It is a sin against God. Do you remember the story in Genesis chapter 39 when uh, Joseph was in the house of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife made advances toward Joseph? And he told her, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? He knew that whatever he might do with that woman would be something that would be wrong, and it would be wrong because it would violate God's trust in him. It would, be, it would violate God's word. It not only is a sin against God, it is a sin against society. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 11, when Amnon proposed fornication to Tamar, uh, Amnon took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him and said, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. So this was not only a disgrace and a sin against God. It also was a sin against society. These kinds of things are not done in Israel, he said, she said. Israelites don't do this thing. We are the people of God. And to do this would be, uh, be shame, be a disgraceful thing in the eyes of everyone. You don't want to do this. Of course, you know he did it anyway. But it's not only a sin against society, it's a sin against one's partner. Look just a, a little bit later on down in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 12. For she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. And then in verse 13, As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And so what happens is he goes on and he violates her and she has to bear the reproach of what he has done. And so it not only is a sin against God, it's a sin against society, and it becomes a sin against one's own partner. But it's also a sin against oneself. In 2 Samuel 13, 13, as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. This young lady knew exactly, Tamar knew exactly what would happen when Amnon committed this great sin against her. She said, uh, it will be, uh, this thing is a disgraceful thing and you'll be like one of the fools in Israel for having done it. 
And unlike other sins, fornication is a sin against uh, the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. And this is a difficult expression. And in comparison to other sins, how is sin a fornication against the body? Because God says it is. If we want to leave it there, God says it is. We may talk more about that here in just a little bit. Now, because the Bible clearly identifies fornication as a sin, nothing can ever change that. No extenuating circumstances allow for it. Not even if someone more powerful tries to seduce you. Not not even uh, if you are away from family and friends and away from the church. Nothing is going to excuse this sin. It is a sin. If one doesn't repent of it, it's going to keep him out of heaven. In uh, the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul told the Colossians, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality or fornications. He continued, Because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. This is what's going to happen if you are guilty of this sin. He told the Ephesians that fornication must not even be named among you. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Not only this, but fornication is a sin that is going to bring terrible consequences. Now, there are no big or little sins in the eyes of God. Sin is sin. Sin is a transgression of God's law. And there are consequences that accompany all sin. But it's also true that temporal consequences of some sin are are much greater than others. The temporal consequences of armed robbery are are greater uh, than shoplifting a pack of gum. We know that. The temporal consequences of murder are much greater than that of, of drunkenness. But there are temporal consequences that often accompany the sin of fornication that are truly terrible. In Proverbs chapter 5, the Bible says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than than oil is her speech. But the end is bitter as wormwood. It's going to feel good going into the sin. It's going to feel good during the sin. But when it's over with, it's not going to feel near as good. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. First of all, there is shame. At least from a biblical perspective, if not in the eyes of society. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 8, speaking of the adulteress, Solomon warned, Keep your way from her and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. In Proverbs chapter 6, just and it's kind of interesting to me how Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 deal extensively with the subject. Proverbs 6 and verse 32 says, The one who commits adultery with the woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find in his reproach will not be blotted out. Among right-thinking people, fornication is going to present and be the cause of a bunch of of shame. And there's going to be the loss of a good name, especially among right-thinking people, if if it becomes known, and it sometimes does. In fact, Here's the thing that I think is really interesting, and this is experience born out of a lot lot of years of preaching. When people commit fornication, particularly uh, committing adultery within marriage, they think that they are not going to get caught. They think, I can do it, and I cannot get caught. There may be some times when that is indeed the case. I'm not going to say that it never happens because that would be too much of an overstatement. 
But what I am going to say is that a person who tells himself that is a fool. Because most of the time, it comes out. It may not come out the next day. It may not come out the next week. It may not come out the next month, maybe even the next year. But let me tell you something. Your sins have a way of finding you out. Seems like I have read that somewhere. Your sins have a way of finding you out. And it will. And when that happens... You may have spent your whole life in building a good name for yourself. And then in in a moment of lustful passion, commit fornication and ruin everything you spent years trying to build. I can give you names. I can tell you locations where men have done that and have ruined themselves. A good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. You don't want to lose a good reputation in a moment of weakness. Because that's going to bring with it a loss of your influence as a Christian when that sin is discovered. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 14, Nathan told David, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. When we read that, most of the time we see the child's going to die. And we read a little bit later, we continue reading where the child did. But here's something we miss. You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. What you have done by your sin is to open up the Lord to scrutiny and open up uh, to those people who would scoff a good opportunity to do that and to blaspheme the holy name of our God. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into people's homes trying to reach them, trying to bring them to know the Lord. And then they actually point to someone who's supposed to be a Christian and say, look, if that's what being a Christian is all about, if that person's a Christian, I don't want to have any part in it. What what have you done? You shut off the door of the kingdom to somebody by your own sinful actions. And you may actually, someone may actually be forgiven of the sin that they committed, but then sometimes even months and years later, people will hold up that sin as a barrier to them obeying the gospel. And so not only have you lost your good name, but out of that you've lost your influence and you have also given occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the high and holy name by which we have been called. We talk about forgiveness, and truly there is a need to make sure that we forgive one another, whatever the sin may be. But people of the world aren't nearly so easy to forgive. They, they have long memories, and so we need to be aware of that. Then there's often the erosion of character. In uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about that story. You know, you can't just commit the single sin of fornication. That just doesn't happen. Because before you get to the actual act of fornication, uh, you've got selfishness and you've got covetousness and, and you've got lust, all of that which is going to lead into the fornication. But once that is, once you have committed the act of fornication, what happens is there's lies to cover it up, there's deception, and there's hypocrisy within the heart. The fornicator almost always has to resort to lies and deception to continue and then hide his immorality. David's adultery with Bathsheba. 
led to deception and drunkenness and even murder. You know that story right well. And sometimes character is so eroded by the sin that the wise man says, none who go to return again, none who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Now, what Solomon said there in uh, Proverbs 2 and verse 19 is a maxim. It's not an axiom. Which means as a maxim, which is what the Proverbs are, is that they are general truths, but general truths sometimes have an exception. The general truth is no one who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. The exception is the person who genuinely repents and comes back to God. I believe that David genuinely repented and came back to God. I believe that the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 genuinely repented and came back to God. There's always a pathway back to God. But here's what I want you to realize. If the general rule still is the general rule, when a person goes so far as to commit fornication, commit adultery, they rarely come back. For every one, uh, for, for every ten that commit adultery, you might have one that comes back. And it may be sometimes that they come back temporarily, but then their problem's really not solved. And within a matter of weeks, months, maybe years, they're going to go right back into the same path. So, don't do it. Don't do it. Realize that, generally speaking, this is what happens. And, and just don't go there. Then there's going to be sexually transmitted diseases. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 11 says, And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. That's what happens to the fornicator. Romans 1 and verse 27, And in the same way also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn to their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So what happened is there were physical problems that was the result of their having committed fornication. Do you realize that in 1965 there were basically two STDs? Only two. But... Uh, now there are more than 30 separate STDs. And the most serious of these, of course, is HIV, and uh, that can have deadly results. In fact, I had a brother. I'll just be honest with you. He was 33 years old. He was homosexual. And he died of AIDS. That was back before they had the medications that could uh, prevent that and help and even make someone who has uh, been a homosexual, they can actually pretty much live a normal life now with the uh, all the money that's been poured into medical research and that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, he died as a result of AIDS. And even today, when people get HIV, it sometimes can be a death sentence. And so you just don't need to go there. You just don't need to go there. If fornication occurs as an extramarital affair, then what happens is, is there's the scriptural right for the innocent party to be able to divorce them. And then they, in turn, can remarry. Again, Matthew 19.9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
and he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So uh, that's, a, uh, that's another lesson in and of itself. But here again, we're talking about the consequences, the terrible consequences that this sin brings. And if one, if one were to avoid all of these consequences, he almost certainly will not escape, or she will not escape, the memory of what has been done. It may be that no one else ever find out, but you'll know. Uh, you'll remember every time a preacher preaches a lesson like this. You'll remember that you were the one who committed fornication because you, can't, uh, you cannot avoid that. And, of course, if one were to avoid all the consequences, uh, one cannot avoid the alienation from God. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, the Bible says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how much plainer that the Bible could state it. But I want to suggest, I don't want to leave you here with the view of of these horrible consequences. I do want to talk about how that the consequences of fornication uh, can certainly be uh, avoided. Uh, the simple fact that God commands us to avoid it can tell us that it can be avoided. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so if He tells us to abstain from it, if He tells us to avoid it, then it is certainly possible. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. So we can crucify the flesh. We can live a life where this sin is avoided, but we've got to ask, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you several ways, and then the lesson will be yours. I want to suggest to you that you need to, first of all, recognize the power of temptation, that this certainly is a a powerful temptation. Out of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. It'd be good to have the time to go through what each of these uh, mean. But then he asks, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And so the point that he is making is, is that the more attention you give to uh, the object of your affection, whether it be a man or woman, the more attention that you give to them, the stronger the lure becomes. And we need to recognize that that is a powerful, powerful temptation. If you find yourself in the situation that Joseph, in, in which Joseph found himself, do you realize how many people would have given in to what Joseph did? Joseph was the exception to the rule. Don't think that you're always going to be the exception. That's a fool's way of thinking. Recognize that that power, that temptation is strong. And then what you need to do is you need to make up your mind ahead of time that you're going to remain chaste. Joseph did not wait until he was tempted by Potiphar's wife to decide whether or not he was going to be a chaste man. That would have been the wrong time to make that decision if he had waited until he was in that temptation. Queen Vashti, 
didn't wait until the moment she was summoned by the king to appear modestly before his nobles to decide if she was going to be a modest woman. She wasn't going to, she hadn't waited until that moment. She knew the kind of person that she was and she wouldn't violate it. King David made his decision in the moment, on the other hand. As he was on the roof while he was looking down at Bathsheba bathing naked and look what that look got him. Look where that look took him. We need to resolve in our minds before temptation appears how we're going to react when it does. We need to know. Job said, I have made it, made a covenant with my eyes. That's a past tense, by the way. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? I'm not going to do it. Because I made a covenant with my eyes not to do it. It's absolutely the wrong thing for uh, a couple of kids in the privacy of the home when mom and dad has left two, two kids alone, boyfriend, girlfriend. It's the wrong time at that moment to decide what kind of person you're going to be and whether or not you're going to give in to temptation. Because the feelings will swipe you away. You have to have made a decision long before then the kind of person that you're going to be. I want to suggest to you we need to recognize our own vulnerability. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Everybody has the temptation. Paul offered this warning in the context that specifically mentions the sin of fornication. But the minute we begin to think that we'd never commit this sin, we're asking for trouble. If David, generally speaking, a man after God's own heart, the sweet singer of Israel could fall prey to this temptation, I'm going to tell you, I can too. And so can you. And so the wise man says in Proverbs 7 and verse 24, Now therefore my son listens to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending into the chambers of death. Don't let your heart go there. Realize that you are vulnerable. So we need to do what Peter instructs us to do. Be of sober spirit, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be of sober spirit, on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by the brethren who are in the world. I recognize that Peter's talking about suffering here, from, and he's talking about uh, suffering from another angle, but I personally know folks who are suffering the consequences of fornication, and so they have to recognize, all of us have to recognize our vulnerability. We need to also control our hearts. This is where the big battlefield is. Steve Farrar, uh, in a book uh, called Point Man, which I recommend every person, every man in this congregation to read that book. It's Point Man. Uh, the book's named Point Man, Steve Farrar. A uh, little bit outdated in the illustrations because the very introduction to the book, which I think is worth the price of the book, actually gives an illustration of a man walking through the jungles in Vietnam. So you can tell that's a little bit outdated. I, I've used that same illustration and updated it to Iran and Iraq. So, you know, it's, but it's still there, still the same illustration. Good book, read it. He said this, The major battlefield in spiritual warfare is the mind. 
The mind is the line of scrimmage in the Christian life, and whoever controls the line of scrimmage controls the game. You guys know this because you're football fans, right? The mind is where the enemy seeks to control us. If he can influence our minds, he can influence our behavior. You see, if the University of Alabama playing football, their problem this last year, if you follow University of Alabama football, I know you all do, you know that it is the line of scrimmage where it is won or lost, no matter what football team you're rooting for. And if you hadn't got that line of scrimmage controlled, you're not going to win the game. What Farrar says, the mind is the line of scrimmage. And that's where you've got to control the game. The mind is where the enemy seeks to control us. And if he can influence our mind, he can influence our behavior. That's how powerful the mind is. Fornications begin in the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. Matthew 15 verse 19. And so long before the actual deed is committed, it begins in the mind. Mark 7 and verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. Long before these sins are committed, there's a problem that is rooted in the heart. Fornication doesn't start in your loins. It starts in your head. Doing nothing, uh, doing things we ought not do is caused by thinking things we ought not think. For as he thinks in himself, so is he. You know, it's doubtful that Potiphar's wife noticed Joseph one minute and then invited him to bed the next. Her thinking and noticing and wondering and finally inviting were almost certainly part of a process that occurred over a period of time. It just wasn't one minute in thought. Just because there has been no physical contact doesn't mean there has been no emotional contact, and that's where the danger begins. It begins in the heart. And so we've got to guard our hearts. Watch over our hearts with all diligence. Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Proverbs 7 and verse 25. We must not allow our minds to be filled with immoral influences of the world. We have to be careful. And then I want to suggest to you that a part of this is to control our eyes as well. And you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say every one of you who looks at a woman to lust after her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So you've got the mind, and now you've got the eyes. That's why Job said, I've made a covenant with eyes not to look where I shouldn't look. Lascivious movies, no matter what they're rating, licentious TV programs, sensual magazines, provocative TV shows, uh, steamy romance novels, all of these things, affect us in at least two different ways. They fill our minds with things that we do not need to be thinking about, things that are impure in their nature, and, and they break down our inhibitions against sexual misconduct. What they do is they break down that, and, and they break down the walls, they break down the barriers that we have erected to keep us from committing that, and over a period of time desensitize us to it, thinking it's not really all that bad, and then we are caught. And this is what you women who dress in tight pants, short skirts, clingy blouses, and exposed uh, cleavage don't seem to understand sometimes. Men see with their eyes. Men see with their eyes. And so we need to avoid the temptation wherever we can. Uh, Proverbs 4, 14, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. 
I love the repetition of that verse. Because he says you've got to avoid this. And that's not enough. You've got to don't pass by it. Then you've got to turn away from it. And then you've got to pass on. That literally means run from it. That's what you've got to do. We can't avoid all sexual temptation because that's just a part of the human experience. But we can't avoid much of it and that's exactly what we can and should do. This means that we need to avoid as much as possible the people and places and practices that give momentum to our passions. We've got to avoid those places. And that means that young people, you need to watch your dating. You don't go to certain places. You don't go to the prom. You, you don't go where all the ungodliness is going to take place. Uh, there are other places you may not go. You don't go to the parties that your friends invite you to. You don't go there because of what they are going to be doing. Don't be foolish. Be careful. Be very careful. And parents, you can help your children. You can help your children by not pushing them into dating before they're emotionally prepared for it, not dressing them or allowing them to dress uh, in a way that's beyond their age, don't, don't do that. You can set firm rules for dating. I ha- I've had a lot of rules. By the way, I'll say this for the young people in the audience. I had a lot of rules for our kids dating, particularly Melissa as she began dating. I said, you know, rule number 963, you shall not date a boy with a small sports car. Dad, why? Because it's too hard for me to sit on a hump. It's just too hard. And I had all kinds of rules like that. I told her, you're going to be in by 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, yeah. Not 5 minutes after 10, not 10 minutes after 10, 10 o'clock. You set solid rules. And even that, depending on where they're going and what they're doing and who they're going to be with. You set solid rules and don't budge. Don't give in. And then I want to suggest to you, we need to make whatever sacrifice is necessary. If your right eye makes you stumble, you tear it out. Steve Farrar said, notice that Jesus didn't say if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. He didn't suggest that if your right hand causes you to stumble, put it in an ace bandage. He uses a hyperbole hyperbole here to make it really clear. This statement was, was made in the midst of the context of sexual sin, and he's saying you do whatever you do, whatever you have to do to avoid this sin. And that may mean you have to end a relationship. It may mean that you have to choose a new set of friends. You know, that's been one of the hardest things that over the last few years particularly, I think it's always been this way, but it seems like that I've been confronted with a lot over the last few years. We'll, we'll convert someone maybe in their 20s, and we want to bring them out of, of a world where it has been sat, their lives have been saturated with sin, Uh, Maybe they've even experimented with drugs and they certainly haven't paid any attention to their moral purity. Uh, And we're we're trying to pull them out of that. One of the first things we tell them is you've got to change friends. You've got to get a new set of friends. Because if you go back into that environment, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be drugged back into doing whatever it is you were doing. And that's not a good thing. And so you need to make sure you change your friends. It may mean just saying no, like uh, Joseph did. It may mean avoiding someone. It may mean fleeing the scene. And for those of you who are older, it may mean changing jobs. You know, if you're confronted with this kind of thing in your job, and many times it, it happens, I have been told horrible stories of people in the workplace 
where uh, the, women, the women were the aggressors in a relationship. And I, I will tell them, you change jobs. You change jobs. Even if it means firing somebody, if somebody is under, uh, under you, uh, if you have to. It may mean even moving to a different town. It may mean drastic stuff, but whatever you have to do, whatever you have to sacrifice in order, in order to avoid this is what you do. If you're married, you need to remember your promise. The wise man describes the immoral woman as one who forgets her covenant with God. Steve Farrar said, real men don't have affairs because real men are responsible. Real men keep their commitments. Even when their personal needs are not being met the way they would hope, even when they are disappointed and wise for some reason, again, real men don't have affairs because real men are responsible. You just don't do it. You made a promise. Dee Bowman was uh, once uh, interviewing a man and his wife who had been married for 70 years. And he asked the man, he said, what is the secret to being married 70 years? And he said, we made a promise and we kept it. We made a promise and we kept it. And I think that's an important aspect of that. You do what you say you're going to do. But then again, if you're single and you have the scriptural right to marry and you can't control your passion, what Paul will tell you to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is you need to get married. Get married. Find someone so that because of immoralities, each man might have his own wife and each woman might have her own husband. If they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. God intends marriage to be one preventive of fornication. But finally, I want to suggest to you something else that I think is really important, especially in this context. And these, we've got to remember that as far as we're concerned, fornication is a sin that can be forgiven. God hates the sin of fornication, and the consequences of fornication are severe. But I, I don't want for us to leave here this morning without emphasizing that uh, fornication, like any other sin, can certainly be forgiven. There are, some, uh, there are some prostitutes that have entered the kingdom of God. They've been forgiven for their fornication in order to, for that to happen. Some Corinthian Christians had been fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, had been homosexuals, but they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of Jesus Christ. So like any other sin, fornication can be forgiven. When forgiven in the eyes of God, as the prophet said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And that forgiveness is found at the foot of the cross. By doing what Jesus tells us to do. That if someone's never come to the cross, he believes in Christ, he turns from his sin and repentance, he confesses Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and he's buried with Christ in the water of grave of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life. And if he has uh, obeyed the gospel, she has become a Christian, then you need to repent of your sin, you need to confess it to those that you've wronged, and you need to uh, pray to God that he'll forgive you of your sin. And we know he will because he said that he would. And all of this must be done with the kind of spirit that David had when he was finally convicted of his terrible sin. In Psalm 51, he said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your love and kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop. Wash me thoroughly. From, uh, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not cast me away from your presence. And if people will seek God's forgiveness, they can find in the spirit of David exactly the same thing that he found. May God bless the lesson to all of us who studied together. There may be some here who want to respond to the gospel this morning. The invitation is open. We're going to sing the song that's been selected to encourage you to make that move. And if there's anything that we can do to help you in your obedience to the gospel, I would hope and pray that you'd make that decision to do that this very moment. Why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing. For the cleansing Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His name?